You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Three Men and a Mystery, All Things Crime, and Zodiac Speaking. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Episode 15, Deborah Dalzell. It was 1999. At 9.15 on the morning of Monday, March 29th, Deborah Dalzell's sister stopped by her house at 5356 Colony Meadows Lane in Sarasota, Florida. The two had agreed the evening before that Deborah would leave her younger sister Peggy's tax returns, which she had done her the favor of reviewing with her trained accountant's eye, in the mailbox for her. But they weren't there. The mailbox was empty. Peggy ran the doorbell and tried the door, but there was no response. Peggy knew her sister would have left for the office by this time and chalked it up to her workaholic sibling forgetting to leave the documents for her, so she left. But this neglectfulness was not characteristic of Deborah, so once she got to work, Peggy tried her sister's home and office phones repeatedly, leaving messages on both machines. Neither of the women had a cell phone at that point. Meanwhile, Deborah's co-workers at KMC Telecom were getting worried about her. The attorney and accountant was a conscientious and driven professional who had quite a bit of responsibility at her job as a business manager at the communications company. The previous week, she had worked over 80 hours. Deborah was expected in the office on this Monday around 7 a.m., but she didn't come in and she didn't call in. At 10 a.m., she was three hours late, and this was unheard of. She wasn't answering her home phone either. Deborah's boss, Mike Magnet, who was out with the flu but was in touch by phone, talked with Deborah's colleague, Joe Siner, who was concerned as well. Joel said of Deborah, quote, She was like a workaholic. She was there early in the morning until all hours of the night. Her not showing up for work that Monday morning was unheard of, as I said. Joel had left at least two messages at her home. By late morning, Mike and Joel agreed that Joel would pop over to Deborah's house to make sure that everything was okay. Deborah lived in a brand new subdivision called Colony Meadows. There were 23 homes scheduled to be built, but the new development was still under construction. Deborah had purchased her home just months earlier in the second half of 1998 for $168,000. She was divorced and lived in her new home alone. Her colleague Joel knew where she lived because he and his wife had attended two holiday parties at her home about 10 miles from the office. One of these was a St. Patrick's Day party just two weeks earlier. At 10.45 a.m., Joel parked his car in Deborah's driveway and rang the doorbell. Like Peggy, just a short time before, he received no answer. The door was locked. Standing on his bumper to peer into the garage, he could see that Deborah's car was inside. Joel walked around the residence and peeked into the windows. The windows to the master bedroom in the back of the house were open, although covered by screens. 
And in Deborah's bedroom, Joel could see that the TV was still on and the bed covers were in a messy pile, something he knew was very uncharacteristic of the fastidious and organized Deborah. Even more distressing, a lamp was knocked over and the nightstand it stood on was askew. That's when Joel knew that something was very wrong. And then walking around further, Joel noticed that a screen at the top of a walled-in pool area was sliced open. He climbed up onto the pool pump mechanism to look over the fence into the courtyard, and he could see that one of the French doors leading into the house was open. Using his cell phone, he called his and Deborah's boss, Mike, and Mike told him to call the police. At 10.19 a.m., Joel called and asked for a welfare check and waited. Sarasota County Sheriff's Office Deputy Deborah Casper arrived at 11.29 a.m. Joel told her that they could not reach Deborah and showed the officer the cut screen. While Deputy Casper was over talking to the closest neighbor to see if she perhaps had a key, Deputy Paul Rigney arrived. Finding the front door and garage doors locked and the car inside the garage, he walked around the east perimeter of the house. He noted that several of the windows were open, but the screens all appeared to still be in place. But noting the screen at the top of the six-foot wall surrounding the pool area was cut, he decided it was time to go into the house. Approaching the windows to the master bedroom, which, as I said, were open, Deputy Rigney could hear running water coming from inside the house, and he could see that the bedroom TV was on. Peering through the window, he noted the lamp on the floor and the askew nightstand. He called out for Deborah but got no response. He easily removed the screen from the center one of the trio of windows to the bedroom and stepped into the room. It was empty. He walked through the bedroom, following the sound of running water to the master bath. One look was all he needed. He came back to the window and told Joel, who was waiting outside, She's in there. She's dead. Deborah Jane Dalzell was born on June 10, 1951, in Paris, Kentucky, to parents Warren and Marilyn Dalzell. When she was young, the family moved to Massachusetts, settling in the Boston suburb of Brookline. Deborah was the middle child of five Dalzell kids, older brothers Timothy and Gerald, and younger sisters Mary Ellen and Peggy. It was a big family, and it sounds cliche to say that they were happy and tight-knit, but they were. Deborah was close to her parents and her siblings. Sadly, her father, Warren, who had retired as a captain in the Brookline Police Department, died suddenly at only 58 years old in 1981. Deborah grew up in New England and in high school was a champion Scottish Highland dancer, gymnast, and cheerleader. In college, she studied to be a legal secretary, but when she was working in a large law firm, she decided to train to become a paralegal. After that, she went on to go back to school and get her bachelor's degree in accounting. After working as an office manager for various law firms, Deborah realized that she wanted to become an attorney herself. She went to law school at night while working full-time, and she passed the Massachusetts bar on the first try. Deborah practiced corporate and banking law at some big New England firms. She also got married in September 1973, when she was just 22, to Robert Pullen. But the marriage didn't last, and the couple had no children. It was Deborah's only union. She remained single, a hardworking professional woman who was known to be a fanatical Red Sox season ticket holder. She was also a smoker, preferring Marlboro Reds. In 1997, pining for warmer weather and beaches, Deborah accepted a recruitment offer from a law firm in Sarasota, Florida. It was a big move for her, but her sister Peggy lived right nearby. 
Deborah moved to the Sunshine State and when her firm disbanded in 1998, went to work for KMC where she worked until her death. She bought the brand new house in Colony Meadows in July 1998. Deborah's job at KMC as business manager required her to wear many hats, from billing department to customer service to human resources. She had lots of friends at work and was nicknamed mother by her colleagues because she was so caring and involved. Deborah was something of a workaholic and often burned the candle at both ends, putting in long hours at the office and exercising at the downtown YMCA. She was social, but her social circles were limited to her work colleagues, whom she would go out with in groups to drinks, dinner, barbecues, or Red Sox preseason games, and her family, with whom she remained extremely close. In fact, at the time of her death, Deborah was preparing to host a big family Easter celebration for which several relatives were flying in from out of town. Although she didn't have kids herself, Deborah was very close to her nine nieces and nephews. They described her as the favorite aunt, the one everyone loves and feels close with. She doted on them. She was very involved in their lives, spoiled them, attended all their concerts and hockey games and graduations, and hosted sleepovers and trips. Deborah always hosted family for the holidays and made them all feel special every day. Her family says she was kind, loyal, genuine, hardworking, and affectionate. Deborah was probably closest to her youngest sister Peggy, who lived in Sarasota with her husband Gary. As we heard earlier, Deborah was doing Peggy's taxes for her, and the two had hung out the day before Deborah was killed. After her death, puzzling over who could have killed her beloved sister, Peggy said, quote, she was a creature of habit, not a huge risk taker. It's so huge for us to still come to grip with that this soft-spoken, wonderful, special person met with someone who murdered her. As I said, then-Deputy Deborah Casper was the first responder to Deborah's house. After Deputy Rigney came to the window and informed Joel that the occupant of the home was dead, Joel went to the front and called out to Deputy Casper, who was talking to a neighbor. He told her what Deputy Rigney had said. Casper called it in to her supervisor. She escorted Joel Siner and his and Deborah's boss, Mike Magnet, and his wife, Lori, who had also arrived at Deborah's house, to the front of the home and told them to stay there. She then walked around the house, put on her gloves, and climbed through the window to assist Deputy Rigney in clearing the scene. Stepping over the threshold into the carpeted bedroom, Casper immediately noted signs of a struggle. There were items on the floor that looked as though they had been on the end table next to the bed, an ashtray and cigarettes, an alarm clock, and the lamp seen by Joel through the window. The end table itself was crooked, as though it had been roughly bumped into or even righted after it was knocked over. A roll of silver duct tape lay by the bed near the wall, its end piece ripped and wrinkled. The bedclothes were in a messy ball toward the center of the bed. Two brown spots were on the carpet near the bed and Deputy Casper could hear running water. Following the sound, Casper walked into the ensuite master bathroom and saw what Deputy Rigney had seen before her. The water in the bathtub was running, pouring over the top of the porcelain tub and soaking the floor. And draped over the side of the tub, with her head, arms, and upper torso submerged, and her lower legs resting on a bath mat, was the body of a woman. She was naked, her feet and legs spread wide apart. A piece of duct tape floated in the tepid bathwater and eventually stuck to the shoulder of the partially submerged woman. Signs of lividity were visible in the victim's lower extremities. Deputies did not touch the body. 
While Rigney called in the crime scene crew, Deputy Casper took a look around the rest of the house, noting that a gym bag was emptied into the sink in an otherwise orderly laundry room off the master bathroom, and a woman's purse sat pristinely on the hallway table. In the kitchen was a shopping bag containing bananas. All appeared to be completely undisturbed. Deputies Casper and Rigney put up crime scene tape around the residence at 11.45 a.m. Crime scene investigators arrived, including Detective Kevin Pingle, who was first on the scene. I spoke with him at length about this case. Detective Pingle and his partner, Detective Vince Meyer, commenced the painstaking process of assessing the crime scene and gathering anything that could be evidence. It would end up taking five days. One of the first things that happened is CSI Bobby Shaw entered the bathroom and turned off the water flowing freely from the bathtub faucet to try to prevent further water damage to the crime scene. It did not appear that the perpetrator had intentionally filled the tub. Instead, a blue towel or bath mat had fallen into the tub. Detectives guessed that it had probably been draped over the side of the tub to dry. Once it was in the water and became waterlogged, it sank and was drawn down to the drain, which it then clogged. So the running water started to build up in the tub, eventually spilling over the sides and soaking the carpeted bathroom and into the bedroom. CSI Shaw and the other techs then turned their attention to other areas of the house while they awaited the arrival of Dr. Wilson Broussard, the deputy chief medical examiner for Sarasota County. Now, normally I don't like to get into the really nitty-gritty details of the assaults on these victims. It just seems disrespectful and exploitative of these women who have already suffered so much trauma. But, unfortunately, I have to get really graphic in Deborah's case because the very details that I would prefer to omit are the ones that would become probative at the trial of her murderer. I assure you it is not prurience that is motivating me to share this information. If you just can't bear it, I recommend you skip forward about 30 seconds or so. Deborah was found draped over the tub. Her lower legs rested on the carpeted bathroom floor beneath her body. She was nude, her feet and legs spread two to three feet apart, according to the incident report. And visible to Dr. Broussard, the ME who arrived at the scene around 3.30 p.m., was, quote, a visible translucent substance on Deborah's genital area, anal area, and thighs. The substance was wet and was dripping out of her onto her thighs with the force of gravity. Seeing this, Dr. Broussard decided to do something unusual, take some sample swabs right then and there. He said that under normal circumstances, he waited until he had the deceased victim on the autopsy table to take all his samples. But in this case, everything looked so fresh that he decided to strike while the iron was hot. Right then and there, he took swabs of the gelatinous fluid that was visible on Deborah's right thigh. Once Dr. Broussard had his samples, he and a technician lifted the body from the bathtub and laid it face up on the bathroom floor. At this point, the amount of trauma suffered by the victim became apparent. A white t-shirt was knotted tightly around her throat. The woman's bruised and battered face was very dark purple, with a lot of broken blood vessels and petechiae from the t-shirt ligature and the blood rushing to her downward hanging head. There was duct tape residue on her face, indicating that a piece of it had been placed over her mouth. This was probably the piece that was found floating in the tub that stuck to her shoulder before they removed her. And visible inside her mouth was a piece of white fabric. It was a devastating scene. 
Dr. Broussard observed that the victim's body temperature had regulated to the ambient temperature of the room and that she had rigor mortis that was breakable. Given these observations, he estimated that she had been dead for a minimum of 8 to 10 hours, but not a lot longer than that. She had died in the small hours of Monday morning. Dr. Broussard's staff removed the body, who was presumed to be the homeowner, Deborah Dalzell, for an autopsy, which was conducted on Tuesday the 30th at 4 o'clock at Sarasota Memorial Hospital. At this proceeding, the T-shirt that was tied around Deborah's throat was removed and preserved in evidence. The cloth item inside her mouth was also removed. It proved to be a white tube sock, which had been shoved so forcefully deep into her throat back to her tonsils that it ripped her frenulum and cut the inside of her mouth. The cause of Deborah's death was mechanical asphyxia due to the combination of the ligature and the gag. She had been strangled by the t-shirt tightened around her neck, and the sock stuffed down the back of her throat served both as a gag and a secondary means of cutting off her air supply. Deborah had also been savagely beaten by her killer's fists. No weapon was involved, but Deborah's jaw was dislocated and her facial region was bruised and disfigured. Dr. Broussard concluded that Deborah had fought against her attacker based on multiple bruises, several friction injuries, and abrasions on her face and head. As we discussed, Deborah had been violently sexually assaulted, almost certainly while bent over the side of the tub. She had injuries to the backs of her knees and legs that were believed to have been caused as her attacker stood or knelt behind her. There was trauma to her vaginal and anal areas, and relatively fresh semen was found in her vaginal canal and cervix. As we know, a substance suspected to be seminal fluid had already been collected from her thigh. Investigators had ample amounts of physical evidence to work with, and the crime scene crew took photos of it all. As I said earlier, crime scene investigators and detectives set to work processing the scene and trying to piece together what had happened. Listeners will need to understand a little bit about the unique layout of this house. Basically, it was shaped like a U, or really more like a hollow rectangle without one of the short sides. The open-air center of the home was a courtyard containing a pool and a lanai. The pool area was covered by a screen roof, as are many pools in Florida, and surrounded on three sides by the walls of the house. One side of the pool courtyard had French doors that led into the house, and the front door of the home opened up into this pool area as well. This front door to the house was locked when police arrived, as were all the windows, save the three open bedroom windows on which intact screens were found. But as Joel and the responding deputies had noted, On the one side of the house that was at the top of the U, there was a six-foot wall enclosing the pool courtyard from the outside. At the top of the wall, a two-foot-wide horizontal screen was cut with precision in an L shape. It would have been possible for someone agile to stand atop the pool condenser mechanism, slash the screen, and hoist himself through the narrow aperture, which was approximately six feet up from ground level. And from there, the intruder would have been able to enter the house through the French doors connecting the lanai and the house, which were unlocked. Indeed, you'll recall that one of these doors was standing open when investigators arrived. Sarasota County Sheriff's Office investigators concluded that this was how Deborah's killer had gotten into the house. Whoever had killed Deborah, she had not let him in voluntarily. From the inside of the house, investigators noted that the knob push-button lock was engaged on the front door, but the deadbolt was not. 
They surmised that the killer had let himself out the front door, for some reason engaging the knob lock on the way out. Perhaps by locking the door, he hoped to delay the timing of Deborah being found. We really don't know. He left the water running in the tub and locked the door. It doesn't really make sense. Deborah's sister Peggy pointed out that the brand new street Deborah lived on did not have streetlights yet. It was very, very dark at night. Each house had a single lamppost out front, but the surrounding areas, which for Deborah's home were a vacant lot and a field, were pitch black at night. Deborah had one house next to her, but at the bottom of her small backyard, which was only 10 to 12 feet long, separated by a chain link fence, were playing fields that belonged to a church that was located behind the house to the south. And Deborah's home had no window coverings installed. She just hadn't gotten to them yet. Because the landscaping behind her home had yet to grow, anyone standing on the playing fields behind her house, or maybe even passers-by on Honore Avenue just west of Colony Meadows Lane, had an unobstructed view into her bedroom at night. Detective Pingle described Deborah's house with all its lights on in the undeveloped area as a beacon. Bootprints and cigarette butts found on the ground outside Deborah's bedroom windows could have been left by construction workers who were continuing to finish the punch list on the home, or they could have been left by someone who was peering through the windows as Deborah slept. She always slept with her TV on, according to her sister. Police began to form a theory that someone had seen Deborah asleep and vulnerable in the dim, flickering TV light and decided to break in via the walled-in area behind the house to avoid attention from any passing cars. Evidence found in the house supported this law enforcement theory that Deborah had been asleep in bed when she was beset by the intruder. Other than the cut screen, most of the house was in order and did not appear to be disturbed at all. Foreign fingerprints were lifted from the frames and latches on the French doors, which is where investigators believed the killer entered. There were also some fingerprints on the front door where they believed he went out. But in general, the living areas of the home were pristine. It appeared that everything had gone down in the master bedroom and bathroom where the evidence told the story. The bed was in total disarray, with both sheets sort of balled up toward the middle of the mattress. The mattress was crooked on the box spring, about 20% out of position. I already mentioned the things on the floor, like the lamp and the ashtray, that appeared to have fallen off the askew bedside table. Detective Pingle formed the opinion that the bedside table had actually been knocked over and then rewrited. This was because the contents of the drawer were all pushed over to one side, flush against the inside wall of the drawer. And the positioning of the bedside table was such that it was right next to the bathroom door, so in order to get into the bathroom, the offender would have had to write the table if it was knocked over in the struggle. I feel like podcasts always say there were no signs of a struggle. Well, here, there certainly were. Besides the personal items in disarray, there was blood on the bedding and a pillowcase and in two spots on the carpet. Given the report by Dr. Broussard that Deborah had been hit in the face to the point that her jaw was dislocated, as well as the clear evidence of a struggle, conclusions were drawn that Deborah was attacked as she lay in bed. A white gym sock was found rolled up inside the bedding. Detectives were told by Deborah's sister that she slept with a t-shirt and socks on. The sock in the bedding appeared to be a mate of the one stuffed into Deborah's mouth, and we know that her t-shirt was found wrapped around her throat. I also mentioned that a roll of duct tape was lying on the floor between the nightstand and the edge of the bed. 
It seemed Deborah was attacked as she slept, subdued with blows, gagged with the sock, duct tape placed over her mouth, and either raped in the bed or dragged into the bathroom where she was raped while being strangled at the bathtub. It's not clear why the water was running full blast, but it led detectives to the theory that the offender had possibly tried to clean Deborah up in order not to leave evidence behind, or maybe he cleaned himself up if he had blood or other bodily fluids on his person. But then, for some reason, he ran off and left the water running. Investigators determined through speaking with Deborah's one close neighbor, whose house was on the bathroom side of Deborah's house, that the woman's dog had been barking repeatedly in the middle of the night. Investigators wondered if perhaps the incessant barking had scared the killer off and he left Deborah there, draped over the tub, the water level slowly climbing until her head was submerged and water streamed over the porcelain edge. Interestingly, Detective Pingle told me that police believed that the killer had brought the duct tape with him. Peggy told investigators that that was not an item Deborah had in the house. And to this day, it has not been determined what item was used to make the clean L-shaped cut in the screen. But it was some kind of razor knife, which the attacker would have had to have had on his person. So he was armed with a blade and duct tape, indicating premeditation but he did not kill his victim using the blade. Instead, he gagged her with her own sock and strangled her with her own t-shirt. Crime scene techs lifted prints from the white glass ashtray and the nightstand and some wall surfaces and doors, but truthfully, not a lot of prints were found. Detectives set about reconstructing events in the days before the murder and delving into Deborah's life. They found out that on Sunday night, Deborah's sister Peggy had invited her to dinner. Deborah was going to come over and bring with her the completed tax returns. The two spoke on the phone around 3 p.m. Sunday afternoon discussing the returns. Then Deborah called around 5 to say that actually she was going to decline dinner because the returns weren't completed and she was just going to stay in and finish them. The sisters spoke one last time around 10, and this is when they made the plan for Deborah to leave the returns in the mailbox. No one spoke to her after that. All indications were that on Sunday night, Deborah had called it a night and gone to bed alone. Neighbors, of whom there were few since only three houses in the development were occupied at that point, had not seen Deborah at all over the weekend. The one next-door neighbor told police about her dog barking, and another told police that she had been walking her dog on Friday night and noticed lights on and laughter coming from Deborah's house but they had not seen anything unusual or noted any suspicious persons wandering around in the middle of the night on Sunday. The few residents of Colony Meadows were rattled by the murder, particularly since the killer had apparently been so stealthy as to slip in and out unnoticed. Residents armed themselves, invested in burglar alarms and motion detectors, and viewed all the construction personnel coming in and out of the development with heightened scrutiny. As I said, the evidence indicated to investigators that Deborah had been attacked by an intruder in the middle of the night. Signs were pointing away from it being someone Deborah was close with, since those people would not be likely to risk detection by scaling a wall and shimmying through a cut screen. And indeed, Deborah's personal life did not provide investigators with any real leads. Deborah was single, generally socialized with groups of work friends and her extended family, and didn't seem to have any behind the scenes drama. Her co-workers and family said she never mentioned any love interests and had no sentimental photos in her office. 
Interviews with Deborah's colleagues, friends, family, and acquaintances did not even raise an eyebrow of the detectives, much less a red flag. Stumped, investigators decided fairly quickly that Deborah was likely targeted at random. There was just no one with any motive in her life, and no one who knew her had any inkling as to who could have killed her. There had been no robbery, nothing was taken from the house that Deborah's family could determine. They were asked not to discuss the details of the case to protect the investigation, but they did let on that they did not believe Deborah was the specific target of her killer. Her brother-in-law, Gary, told the media that, quote, She did not bring this trouble into her life. She is the least likely candidate to have something like this happen. In other words, Deborah did not lead a high-risk lifestyle, had no secrets, and had no enemies. Mike Magnant, Deborah's friends and her supervisor at KMC Telecom, said, quote, We were close enough to her personally and professionally that if something was going very right in her life, or if something was going very wrong in her life, I certainly would have known. In short, they had no suspects. Of course, neighbors' fears were only heightened by the possibility of a random attack since it meant it could happen to anyone. Colony Meadows had no security in place, and there were all sorts of unknown persons coming and going due to the construction. There was still only one street in the new neighborhood, and it ended in a cul-de-sac, so anyone driving down it would have had to turn around at the dead end and drive back out. But anyone who has ever lived in a construction zone knows that there are lots of foreign cars and unknown people, and after a while, you stop paying attention to each one. And potential buyers drove through the new subdivision regularly. In other words, strange vehicles and faces were the norm. Further, the church to the south of Colony Meadows, the one with the playing fields, was known to provide services to the homeless, which often sought the warmth of Florida sunshine in the winter. The interstate and railroad tracks were also nearby. Honestly, if Deborah's killer was a transient stranger, it could have been anyone. Police looked hard at one guy named Ed who lived in a shack next to the church behind Colony Meadows and was somewhat shifty, but no link was found. They also spoke with construction workers, realtors, contractors, and anyone else who was known to have been in the area, with no success. Within two weeks of Deborah's murder, a reward fund established by her employer and some other local businesses with help from Crime Stoppers was up to $13,000. The reward went uncollected as tip after tip and lead after lead failed to bear fruit. And then there was another murder. Three weeks after Deborah was killed, 19-year-old Sonia Santiago was found murdered in her house in Charlotte County, which abutted Sarasota County. Investigators would not reveal how Sonia died, but public fears of a deranged killer striking women in their own homes spiked. That was, until Sarasota investigators revealed that they had compared the physical evidence from both cases and determined that it was not the same perpetrator. Per the Sarasota Herald Tribune, that comparison of evidence included DNA testing. Remember, this was 1999. According to that publication, quote, The Dalzell case is the first in which Sarasota investigators publicly confirmed that they used DNA tests in an attempt to identify the killer. DNA testing is such a common practice that, in 1997 to 1998, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement added 22,000 DNA samples to its DNA database. The database referred to in the article was the state's DNA Investigative Support Database, a state-level compilation of DNA from certain convicted offenders. 
Indeed, the FDLE would go on to become one of the first state law enforcement agencies in the country to establish its own internal forensic genealogy department, headed up by a renowned genetic genealogist, Lori Napolitano. As an example of how effective Florida's DNA database was even in 1999, Sonia Santiago's case was quickly solved because her killer, who was out of prison on a court-mandated release order to relieve prison overcrowding, had been required to enter his DNA into the sexual offender database after a previous crime. When he raped and murdered Sonia by slashing her throat, Wayne Scott Harbison left behind his calling card, semen, that would link him directly to the crime. But there was no such luck in Deborah's case. Crime scene analysts extracted a male profile from the semen collected from Deborah's body, but there were no corresponding hits in the Florida database or the fledgling National CODIS system. And while investigators were able to use the DNA to eliminate several people, such as Joel, Mike, and another guy named John from Deborah's office and her brother-in-law, the DNA did not point to any suspects. Investigators had to stick to conventional methods of crime solving, canvassing the neighborhood, interviewing residents, doing background checks on the construction workers at the development, and taking more than 30 voluntary DNA samples in the first year after the murder. Many of these were just men who lived or worked in the area at the time of the crime, even if they had zero connection to Deborah. It was essentially a mini DNA sweep, but it led to nothing. On the first anniversary of Deborah's murder, Sarasota County Sheriff Sergeant Keith Muncie said bluntly, quote, It's a whodunit at this point. By the time four years had elapsed, investigators were 100% convinced that it was a random crime, and Deborah's family despaired that it would ever be solved. It's a cold case at this particular point, said Gary, Peggy's husband. The sheriff's office has exhausted every lead they could. They were pretty confident in the beginning. In the end, it didn't work out. Faced with the fact that there were no suspects and there was no movement on the case, Peggy and Marilyn, Deborah's mom, resorted to running an ad in the local papers pleading for information. By the late 2010s, thousands of man-hours had been expanded, thousands of biological samples and evidentiary items had been tested for DNA, over 300 people had been contacted, and over 100 DNA swabs had been taken from individuals. It all led nowhere. The use of DNA in this case was advanced quite early on. For one thing, Detective Pingle told me that they had so much DNA to work with because of the ample amounts of seminal fluid Deborah's killer had left behind that investigators didn't have to concern themselves with using up all their samples. Around the year 2000, the SCSO contracted with a company called DNA Print Genomics to do some cutting-edge DNA analysis. This company had an early version of the Parabon Snapshot technology that they called DNA Witness. They also had technology to determine ancestry from human DNA. DNA Print Genomics is no longer in business, but in the early 2000s, the company was able to tell the SCSO that the killer of Deborah Dalzell was a Caucasian male with brown hair. This information helped, but of course, was not a lot to go on. And regular entries of the DNA profile from the killer in Dakotas never generated any hits. In 2012, the SCSO brought in some retired detectives to review cold cases, including Deborah's. And they continued to submit the physical evidence in the case for increasingly sophisticated testing. 
In 2016, DNA Labs International obtained a sample from Deborah's sexual assault kit and was able to develop a complete male DNA profile of the killer. And very soon thereafter, Parabon Nanolabs perfected its DNA phenotyping technology. The SCSO submitted the profile from Deborah's case to Parabon, and the snapshot results came in showing that the suspect was a white male with fair skin, brown or hazel eyes, and brown hair. Using this description, police compared the computer-generated image and description predicted by Parabon to men in the case file, but had no luck. That's because the real killer was never in the case file. He was never even looked at. In 2018, the year the Golden State Killer case broke, the SCSO decided to go one step further in Deborah's case. They contracted with Parabon to perform autosomal DNA analysis on the male suspect's profile. The forensic genealogy in this case was very complex, and to be frank, SCSO personnel were not permitted to give me any details. What I was told was that the first person identified through DNA in GEDmatch was a first or second cousin twice removed of the killer. This is a very remote relationship and meant that over 800 branches of the family trees relating to the suspect had to be examined, and people eliminated based on age, location, and other factors. Matching DNA samples on file up against that of the unknown killer and collecting volunteer samples helped to eliminate more targeted family members once investigators had honed in on a specific branch of the family tree. But red herrings were plentiful, including that another branch of the tree led to an infamous East Coast crime family, which turned out not to be involved. Detectives then found out that a family within a possible branch had ties to the Sarasota area, and in this family were three men who lived in the region and were of an age in 1999 where each of them could be the killer. The family surname was Fleming. Joseph Fleming, who was a possible suspect based on the forensic genealogy, had lived in the Sarasota area and had a minor criminal record. He had died in 2001. But he had two sons who could also be the killer. Both were connected to Sarasota and, in fact, lived in the Sarasota area in 1999 when Deborah was killed. Luke Fleming was born in 1979, and his brother Jesse was born in 1981. When Deborah was killed, they were 20 and 18 years old, respectively. And at the time, they had lived with their mother and stepfather at 5185 Magnolia Pond Drive, just 0.7 miles from Deborah's house. The choice of where to start was easy for investigators because one of the brothers, the younger one, Jesse, had an impressive criminal record. It spanned the years 2001 to 2018 with 52 different charges, everything from grand theft auto, battery, burglary, and drug possession to resisting a police officer with violence. He was also arrested in 12 civil violations, including many episodes of domestic battery, and had racked up 42 traffic violations. This guy was bad news and liked to beat up women. Police were aware of him as a local troublemaker, and he looked like a very viable suspect given the genealogy and his record. The only problem? Because of his record, his genetic profile was in CODIS, and it had never provided a hit when investigators ran the Dalzell suspect's profile through the system repeatedly over the years. He was not a match. There was one brother left, Luke Fleming of St. Petersburg. He had a minor arrest record, and he had the physical traits predicted by the Parabon phenotype. 
Investigators started tailing Luke Fleming. They collected some surreptitious samples, what the detectives call a trash pull, but were never able to get a viable sample of his DNA. Finally, a close family member provided a DNA sample, and comparisons of that sample and the sample from the killer of Deborah Dalzell were a match. Luke Fleming was her killer. Let's talk about our killer, one of those rare ones so far who has been captured alive. Luke Edward Fleming was born on January 11, 1979, in New York. In 1991, when he was 12, his family moved from Brooklyn to Sarasota, and Luke graduated from Riverview High School in 97. He went on to graduate from the University of Southern Florida with a degree in psychology. But he was enrolled at Manatee Community College in Bradenton and living with his mom and stepdad when, at age 20, he broke into Deborah Dalzell's home and brutally raped and murdered her. Now, of course, I can't help but wonder whether Fleming ever used his psychology degree to analyze his own psyche and its darker recesses. By some accounts, Luke's childhood was not a happy one, and he did not get along with his mother. He only had one arrest of consequence on his record— a misdemeanor domestic battery arrest in 2002 in Manatee County involving his then-wife, Amy. This incident involved a huge argument in which Fleming pushed Amy and then locked himself in the bathroom. Amy called the police, and when they arrived, Fleming showed them bloody scratches on his back and chest that he said Amy had inflicted on him. But Amy had no skin under her nails, and her hands were not recently washed. Deputies noted that they had ink stains on them. Fleming, meanwhile, still had wet hands when deputies checked them, and he eventually admitted to the officers that he inflicted the scratches on himself to make it look as though Amy had attacked him. Charges were never filed in this case, but the incident demonstrates the manipulation, ruthlessness, and cunning that Fleming is capable of. Amy and Fleming separated after about 10 years together and finally divorced in 2013. Besides the one domestic violence incident, Fleming also had traffic infractions numbering in the teens in several counties. What's very interesting is that he had several interactions with law enforcement in the days surrounding the murder of Deborah Dalzell. He was arrested for possession of alcohol by a minor on March 26, 1999, three days before he killed Deborah. He was also written up in an SCSO incident report on March 11th, and he received a traffic citation on March 30th. It seems as though Luke Fleming was having an angry month when he killed Deborah. When Fleming was arrested in 2018 after the DNA match was established, he was 5 foot 11, 170 pounds, with brown hair and brown eyes. He appeared as the Parabon snapshot predicted. At the time, Fleming was living alone at 611 93rd Avenue North in St. Petersburg. He was working at a seafood processing company called Bama Sea Products. Other than his marriage and divorce with Amy, he had had a long-term relationship from 2012 to 2016 with Brittany Meisch. And what she has said about their relationship is an interesting part of the story. She spoke at length with reporters from the Sarasota Herald Tribune about her life with Luke Fleming. When Brittany met Fleming in 2012, the two were sitting in a hot tub together at a friend's apartment in Sarasota. She was 23, he was 33, and married to Amy, but separated. Brittany described Fleming, per the Sarasota Herald Tribune, as, quote, funny, charming, accomplished, and smart. 
After a first date at a fondue place and a whirlwind relationship, he surprised her with a caricature drawing while they were at a strawberry festival in Plant City that said, Will you marry me? Brittany said that marriage was important to Fleming, something he wanted, and his past marriage to his wife Amy had not worked out. The two didn't set a date, though, and put it off as they moved to Tennessee for a few years. In 2015, Brittany got pregnant, and the two raised their son, little Kieran, together for a time. Brittany told the Herald Tribune that Fleming was a great father. His job took him away for long trips during the week, but things were good when he was home on weekends. The only thing that gave her pause was, in hindsight, a major red flag. As described by Brittany to the Herald Tribune, quote, Something would happen with his eyes when he got angry. Something was not right. He wasn't like a normal person. It seemed almost dark. When they fought, Fleming would break things that Brittany cared about, like her antique camera. He also was obsessed with cleanliness. He would clean the apartment with bleach so often that she nicknamed him Dexter. He definitely exhibited some OCD and controlling tendencies. By 2016, when the couple moved back to Florida, Brittany felt that her fiancé was two people, one cruel, one charming. He never expressed regret for his behavior or remorse. In short, he lacked empathy. Brittany started to quietly plan her exit from the relationship, but she could not let on as she knew that he would stop her. She told the newspaper, quote, I was afraid of the hell he would bring down on me if he found out. When everything was in order and Brittany had set up her support network and personal matters to be on her own, she took Kieran, threw him in the car, and left. As she drove, Fleming angrily pursued her and tried to force her off the road. Brittany called police from her car as she sped to her parents' house, and officers were waiting for them when they arrived. Brittany told them what was going on, but Fleming convinced them that it was Brittany who was trying to take his son away from him. Brittany applied for two restraining orders against her ex-fiancé, but they were both denied. Fleming moved to St. Petersburg soon after that, and through their lawyers, the couple worked out a joint custody arrangement where Fleming would have Kieran on some weekends. Let's rewind to 2018 before Fleming's arrest and take a look at how exactly the forensic genealogy results naming Fleming as a possible suspect were confirmed by police. It gets a little crazy. If you recall, the investigators had taken the forensic genealogy leads and narrowed them down to three names, Joseph Fleming, Luke Fleming, and his brother, Jesse Fleming. Since Joseph had been an older man when Deborah was killed, and Jesse was in CODIS, investigators were pretty sure that Luke was their man, but of course they can't arrest someone on pretty sure. They had to have more than that. In 2018, Brittany, Fleming's ex, got a phone call from SCSO detective Ben Lubrano. He asked her if she had ever heard the name Deborah Dalzell. She hadn't. Remember, the case was nearly 20 years old. Brittany was a child when it happened. And she was positive that her ex, Luke Fleming, had never mentioned that name to her. The detective on the phone explained it was a cold case, and they believed that her ex's father, Joseph Fleming, could be the murderer. He was deceased, and they were looking for an evidentiary connection. In what must have been a somewhat awkward conversation for Brittany, the detective wanted reassurance that, yes, she was certain that Luke Fleming, Joseph's son, was her son Kieran's father. She was. They then told her that she would be helping the case if they could get a sample of DNA from her son. Kieran, just a toddler, was being asked to help solve a murder. Detective Lubrano arrived at Brittany's home in Bradenton and supervised as she took the giant Q-tip in hand. She swabbed the inside of Kieran's mouth and handed over the stick. 
Hopefully, two-year-old Kieran was too young to remember any of this. Once investigators had Kieran's DNA, they ran a Y-DNA test and confirmed that the killer was a male in Kieran's direct paternal line. And then an autosomal test of Kieran's DNA revealed that there was a 99.99% chance that the killer was his father. This was enough for Sarasota County authorities to obtain an arrest warrant for Luke Fleming. The arrest of Luke Fleming was one of the more dramatic ones we've seen. In the cases I've covered where the suspect is still alive and is actually taken into custody, Michelle Martinko, Christy Mirak, Helene Prasinski, Shante Blankenship, and Jody Loomis, the arrests went down without incident. Often a police ruse was involved, as in the case of Helene's killer, James Clanton. But the collar of Luke Fleming was notable because it happened in front of someone close to him who later shared her perspective. It was Sunday, September 16, 2018. As often happens on Sunday evenings in the case of separated parents who share custody of children, the end of the weekend signals time for a handover of the kids. It was no different for Luke Fleming. He met his ex-fiancee, Brittany Meisch, in a bank parking lot abutting a strip mall to turn their young son, Kieran, over to his mother. As soon as the handoff was complete, Brittany strapped Kieran into his seat in her car and Fleming started to drive off, swarms of undercover cop cars screeched up and surrounded Fleming's vehicle before he could pull out of the lot. Of course, officers had waited until their target no longer had a child in his car. Brittany watched in disbelief as her ex was cuffed and taken away without a glance at her. Remember, at that point, she had been told that the police suspected Fleming's father of committing murder. But she knew that the level of attention being paid to her ex by the cops was disproportionate to him just being a relative of a suspect. And she had gotten sort of a tip-off that it was really Luke Fleming, not his dad Joseph, that was the target of the detective's investigation. On the day she was to meet Fleming to collect Kieran, that Sunday, September 16th, she got a text from detectives asking if her plan to meet Fleming in the SunTrust Bank parking lot was still a go. She figured out that there was going to be some kind of law enforcement presence at the handoff, and she worried that if Fleming detected it, he would keep Luke and avoid the meeting altogether. As described by the Herald Tribune, quote, she raced to the bank and pulled into the parking lot right next to his car. She saw the arrest. Kieran, in his car seat, did not. Brittany drove to her aunt's house, hysterical. Her son's father was a possible murderer. She had witnessed his arrest with her child in the car. The stress level must have been intolerable. Detective Brandon Clark came to her house that night to explain what had happened. They were sure that they had their man. Brittany had spent five years with Fleming, and she never had the slightest inkling of his dark past. They were engaged for a time. They co-parented Kieran, who was born in 2016. They had split up, but still, Brittany thought she knew everything about Fleming. She was wrong. As for Fleming, upon his arrest, he asked what he was being arrested for. The officer told him detectives would explain all of it, to which Fleming responded something along the lines of, I know you've been poking around, but I'm not involved in anything with my dad. Fleming was charged with sexual battery with great bodily harm and the first-degree murder of Deborah Dalzell. He was 39 years old when he was arrested. Post-arrest and pursuant to a search warrant, detectives obtained a DNA sample from Fleming. Video of him being swabbed is available on YouTube. To the surprise of no one, it was a match. 
The odds that someone else had been the contributor of the seminal fluid on Deborah was one in six sextillion. In a recorded phone call from jail three days after his arrest, Fleming told Brittany to take Kieran and move out of town. He told her to take whatever she could from his apartment and sell it so she'd have some money to help her relocate. It sounds like Fleming knew he wasn't coming home. On September 18, 2018, the SCSO held a press conference. They had a suspect in custody in the 19-year-old murder of Deborah Dalzell. Sheriff Tom Knight and Captain John Walsh discussed the arrest of Luke Fleming and what led investigators to hone in on him as the killer in Deborah's 1999 murder. The sheriff thanked all those who were involved, including Parabon and the FBI. It turned out that the FBI had prepared a profile of the killer of Deborah Dalzell, which posited that he was probably a white male, he lived nearby, and he had a somewhat menial job. All of this turned out to be correct. Deborah's sister Peggy spoke on behalf of the family, saying, quote, As a family, we have dreamed of the day we would get the news that they caught their killer. We now have a face and a name for this monster. She described the day as very emotional for her mother, siblings, and nieces and nephews who, she said, never gave up hope even after 19 years of waiting. Speaking for her mother, Marilyn, Peggy said, quote, For 20 years, he has been able to see the sun, breathe the air, and see the flowers. May today be the last day. She said that no one in the Dalzell family had ever heard of Luke Fleming. Luke Fleming was indicted on sexual battery and murder charges on November 29, 2018, for the murder of Deborah Dalzell. The prosecution decided not to pursue the death penalty, but to push for life in prison instead. After the usual pretrial motions, delays, filings, and hearings, the murder trial commenced in February 2020. Assistant State's Attorney Karen Freivillig presented her case over a two-day period. The state posited that Luke Fleming broke into Deborah's house and raped and murdered her on Sunday night, March 28th to 29th, 1999, that this was premeditated and that this was proven by the DNA evidence. The case against Fleming was heavily, in fact, almost exclusively reliant on the DNA. There was no other evidence presented at the trial. Circumstantial evidence was taken off the table in this case. What I was told was that the prosecution wanted to rely on the science, which was incontrovertible. The only connection between Fleming and Deborah Dalzell presented at trial was that Luke Fleming was 20 years old at the time of Deborah's murder, and he lived 0.7 miles away. Let's see how the trial played out. Deborah's sister Peggy testified about her sister's plans for that Sunday night, which were to stay home and finish her taxes. Her colleague Joel testified that he and his wife had discussed with Deborah the concept of grabbing a drink on Sunday night, but they never followed up. It had been more of a, if it works out, great, if not, no big deal plan. All signs pointed to Deborah being home alone that night. In the morning, she was dead. Captain Deborah Casper, the first responding deputy, testified about what she had seen in the home on the morning of March 29th. Bobby Shaw, the crime scene tech who turned off the bathwater and witnessed the autopsy, testified about the T-shirt around Deborah's neck and the sock shoved into her throat. The use of the T-shirt as a tourniquet to choke Deborah, with the sock in her mouth and her head underwater, as well as the use of a weapon to cut the screen, showed ample premeditation and intent to kill. 
Detective Pingle, who was the lead investigator on the case, testified that he had personally interviewed Deborah's co-workers on the day she was found. He also interviewed the family to get the full picture of Deborah's social circle and lifestyle. He said he worked for years to track down anyone who even remotely was connected with Deborah and collected swabs from over 40 men over the course of the investigation. There were no solid suspects. I'm not going to get into all the testimony about the DNA evidence. Suffice it to say, it was presented exhaustively by the prosecution witnesses, who were supremely qualified lab techs and analysts who had tested the DNA over the years as analytic procedures became more sophisticated and specific. Deborah's original sexual assault kit was put into evidence in 1999. The DNA profile from that material was sufficient to exclude men like Joel, Mike, John, and others, FDLE forensic analyst Chris Kano testified. One of the cigarette butts found at the scene was matched to Joel, but on two butts, there was insufficient DNA to test. Mary Pacheco, a crime lab analyst from the FDLE, also testified. She said that she performed tests on the sexual assault kit, including the seminal fluid swabbed on Deborah's right thigh, several times over the years as testing advanced, starting in 2013. In 2015, she was able to obtain a single, complete male profile after performing STR, short tandem repeat, analysis on the semen sample from Deborah's right thigh. By 2017, when she did all the testing again, she was able to isolate a complete single-source profile with all 21 STR locations. And when she compared the DNA of Luke Fleming from the buckle swab of his cheek after his arrest, it was a complete match. Ms. Pacheco emphasized that for the thigh sample, the statistical likelihood is less than 1 in 700 billion that the DNA came from someone other than Luke Fleming. Alicia Cadenas, the lab director of DNA Labs International, which did some of the testing on this case, testified that the sexual assault kit yielded one single male profile. This was key to the prosecution's case. There was only one male contributor to the DNA found on and in Deborah. In other words, only one person had raped her. Why this is important will become apparent in a moment. Ms. Cadenas also testified about the testing that was conducted on the sample of Kieran's DNA. She performed Y-DNA testing on the sample, this follows paternal lineage, and compared it to the DNA left on Deborah. She determined that a male relative of Kieran was the killer. She then did an autosomal test to determine whether the contributor of the foreign DNA on Deborah was the biological father of Kieran Fleming, and the finding was that the father of Kieran could not be excluded. So based on the DNA analysis, a combined paternity index was calculated, and the probability of paternity was 99.99%. In other words, the odds are 99.99% that the father of Kieran Fleming is the person who left semen on Deborah. Then they compared Luke Fleming's DNA to the foreign profile, and it was a match, and only one in 6.06 sextillion people would be expected to have this exact DNA profile. Ms. Cadenas also testified regarding the DNA found on the white t-shirt knotted around Deborah's neck. She testified that she cut samples from the t-shirt in the locations where someone would have had to have gripped it to tie the knot and tighten it. She had to perform Y-DNA testing to isolate male DNA because there was too much female DNA on the t-shirt to detect it otherwise. 
The Y-DNA came back with a profile that indicated a mixture of at least three individuals. But one of the contributors was the dominant or major contributor, and that profile was consistent with Luke Fleming. Ms. Cadenas acknowledged that the profile would also be consistent with one in 610 Caucasian men, but the vaginal and cervical swabs were from one male contributor, and the chances that that contributor was not Luke Fleming were one in 4.9 nonillion. Brittany Meisch testified about the process of swabbing her son for his DNA. There were no questions for her on cross. Essentially, the state's strategy in this case was to overwhelm the jury with the incontrovertibility of the DNA evidence in this case. All in all, the state's experts testified that thousands of samples of genetic material were tested. The DNA on Deborah and on the t-shirt belonged to Luke Fleming and Luke Fleming alone, and the numbers were astronomical. Dr. Broussard, the medical examiner who had performed the autopsy on Deborah and who had had the foresight to take the thigh swab on the spot, testified that Deborah could have been rendered unconscious very quickly. He said that if her airways were cut off and the flow of blood through the jugular vein was impeded, the loss of oxygenated blood to the brain could result in unconsciousness in a matter of seconds. The T-shirt tied around her neck could have resulted in her passing out in 10 to 20 seconds, and death would follow after a few minutes after her heart stopped. I'm sure everyone in the courtroom said a silent prayer that this is what occurred and Deborah was unaware of what was happening to her as Luke Fleming assaulted her. And Dr. Broussard testified that Deborah had been dead about 8 to 10 hours when he checked her at 4 p.m., putting her death in the early morning. And this timing and the single male DNA profile was everything for the state's case, as we shall see at the end of the trial. After Dr. Broussard, the state rested its case. It was the defense's turn. And the defense attorney, Ms. Borghetti, did not present a single witness in the defense of Luke Fleming, except one. A very surprising one, the defendant himself. And his story would shock everyone in the courtroom. Before we get to Fleming's testimony, during the prosecution's case, Fleming's attorney, Anne Francis Borghetti, did manage to point out some holes in the state's case and to insinuate that there could be other suspects. Here's the gist. Borghetti cross-examined Deborah's sister Peggy, asking her about a worker at Deborah's home who had made her nervous because she had observed him possibly wearing an ankle monitor bracelet. She had reported him to the police. Also, Peggy admitted that there were plenty of men who could have met Deborah while she was out and about at the Y, shopping at Publix, and so on. A business card from Saratoga Singles was found in Deborah's purse. Of course, the implication was that she had a secret liaison with someone unknown to her colleagues and family. To that end, Borghetti got Captain Deborah Casper to testify about her conversation with a neighbor of Deborah's, Carla Clifford. Carla told her that she saw lights on and heard voices at Deborah's home on the Friday night before she died, as if Deborah was having a visit with someone she enjoyed. Did Deborah have a secret paramour? Under cross from Borghetti, Deborah's colleague Joel testified that Mike Magnet had called in sick to work on that Monday morning. As we all know, that often correlates with someone who has been doing something nefarious. And Joel acknowledged that he himself had been asked to contribute hair and DNA samples and fingerprints. Perhaps the investigators had been looking at him was the unspoken implication. Plus, Joel testified that he and his wife had talked to Deborah prior to the weekend about possibly meeting up for a drink at a local bar, the Daiquiri Deck, on Sunday night. 
He said it never happened, but the defense implication was that Deborah had wanted to go out, so she had gone out alone and met Luke Fleming that night. Attorney Borghetti did do a good job of pointing out all the evidence that did not exist against her client. In short, there was no physical evidence connecting Luke Fleming to Deborah's home whatsoever. The only evidence of him was found on her person in the form of seminal fluid and the touch DNA on the t-shirt, which he would explain away during his testimony. Boot prints and cigarette butts at the scene were never connected to him. Two faint Y-DNA samples not consistent with Fleming were found on the t-shirt. And furthermore, there were lots of fingerprints lifted at the scene that did not match Fleming or anyone else known to investigators. On cross, Detective Ben Lubrano, a state witness, acknowledged that Luke Fleming was excluded as the person who had left a fingerprint on the glass ashtray, the end table, the cigarette box found in the master bedroom, the loose cigarette found in the master bedroom, and the front door. Same for the French door frames and interior latches and a wall in the master bedroom. These fingerprints have never been attributed to anyone. Finally, Borghetti got one of the analysts to admit that one of the evidence samples had been mislabeled and got Dr. Broussard to acknowledge that the anal redness and the vaginal tear that Deborah had exhibited could happen in consensual sex. Now for Fleming's testimony. Fleming testified that in March of 1999, he was living at 5185 Magnolia Pond Drive with his stepfather, mother, and brother. His real father was living in Clearwater, but died in 2001. After college, he worked as a counselor for First Step Sarasota and then as manager of several call centers for local businesses. Then he became a production consultant, whereby he flew to different businesses throughout the country to help them get their production numbers up. In March of 1999, Fleming said, he frequented two bars in the Clark Road area. They were places that would serve him underage. Remember, he was 20 at the time. One was Applebee's, and the other was the Swamp Bar, which I'm not sure I would frequent based on the name. He could not recall which bar he was at on the night of Sunday, March 28, 1999, but whichever one it was, he said he met Deborah Dalzell there. He noticed that she had a Northeastern accent, and he was born in New York, so they started talking. And here's his description of the encounter, quote, at one point after we'd been talking for a few minutes, she wanted to smoke a cigarette. We went outside. I don't know if she offered me one or not. I don't think I was smoking at the time. We were flirting. We began kissing, holding hands. At some point, I led her over to my car. We did get in the back seat. We did have consensual sex. Nothing unusual. I mean, I would describe it as normal. Afterwards, we got out and we smoked another cigarette or she smoked a cigarette. I believe I continued drinking. I don't know if I took her phone number or not, and we both left the bar in our own cars. I had never seen her again after that. Fleming claimed on the stand that this casual sexual encounter between a 20-year-old community college student and the 47-year-old businesswoman went down between 8 and 9 p.m. on Sunday night. He did not use a condom, he said, and acknowledged that semen found on Deborah likely belonged to him. He said, quote, I can't deny being physically intimate with the woman. But he said he didn't know where she lived, and under questioning from his attorney, Fleming answered firmly, absolutely not, regarding whether he had cut the screen, attacked Deborah, beat her, battered her, gagged her with a sock, tied a t-shirt around her neck, raped her, and killed her. Okay, closing arguments. 
Here's another part where if you're morally opposed to hearing the horrific details of the assault or you're just squeamish, you might want to fast forward. The state's closing argument focused on the semen found on Deborah. The words of the prosecutor, Ms. Freiwillig, are something you don't hear every day, and I have to give silent thanks to this jury in light of all the indecencies they had to view, hear about, and contemplate in this case. The prosecutor said, quote, That semen was fresh and still flowing, and Dr. Broussard told you it dripped down from her vaginal and anal area onto her thigh. It dripped. It was still dripping. It was still wet. If she had put on her panties and clothes and sat in the seat of the car and drove home from a bar after having sex with a 20-year-old stranger, it would not be dripping from her anal area. Look at the photographs that were taken of Deborah's posterior of how that semen glistened. It was wet. It was deposited there at the house, not in the back seat of his car. At this point, close-up photos of Deborah's private parts were shown to the jury. The DNA, Freiwillig said, was the case's silent witness, and it said that Luke Fleming was Deborah's killer. The live witness, Fleming, was not believable, she said. If the timeline had been what the defendant claimed, that he and Deborah had their encounter between 8 and 9 p.m. the night before, the fluid would have been dried in the victim's underwear and been trapped on her clothing, not freshly dripping from her person. He himself admitted he had sex with her, and we know that only he had sex with her, not someone else later, as only his DNA was found. Based on the state of the evidence on Deborah's person, this encounter had to have happened in the house fairly recently before she was found. Whoever had violently raped her had killed her. And Fleming's DNA was found not only on Deborah, but on the t-shirt. Further, it's not credible that Fleming could not recall what bar he was at when this encounter happened, how long they were together, what she was wearing, what kind of car she drove, whether he got her number, and so on. Finally, the t-shirt tied around the victim's neck causing her death showed premeditation and that he killed her deliberately. In her opening statement to the jury, defense attorney Borghetti had said, quote, Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, over 20 years ago, my client Luke Fleming had sex with Deborah Dalzell. The evidence will show that the two of them met in a bar restaurant in Sarasota. They went out to his car and had sex in his car, and then they parted their ways. The evidence will show that this was the one and only time that my client had contact with Deborah. Now, she said, there is no evidence that Luke Fleming murdered Deborah or sexually battered her. He did have sex with her, but DNA does not tell you when it was deposited. Further, none of the evidence in the home can be connected to him because he wasn't there. Nothing put him in the house. Borghetti reeled off the list of the fingerprints collected from the bedstand, the glass ashtray, the Marlboro cigarette box, the loose cigarette, the front door of the house, the French doors, the latches on the French doors, and the north wall of the master bedroom, none of which were connected to Luke Fleming. None of his DNA was found other than on Deborah. It could have been any number of men, construction workers, co-workers, men in Deborah's life who had killed her. After the conclusion of both sides' closing arguments, things wrapped up quickly and the jury got the case. They deliberated from 1.25 p.m. to 3.39 p.m. before announcing that their verdict was ready. Luke Fleming was guilty of murder in the first degree and sexual battery. Still in his suit, Fleming was cuffed and prepared for sentencing. I'm not going to go into too much detail about the multiple victims' impact statements that Deborah's family presented prior to the sentencing of Luke Fleming. Suffice it to say that they were truly heartbreaking. 
Deborah was very loved and cherished by her family. She was a special person, her relatives all made clear. They spoke in detail about the positive impact she had had on their lives and the devastating loss they felt when she was so brutally taken away. The words of Marilyn Dalzell, Deborah's very elderly mother, were especially poignant. She lamented that, quote, It is terrible that a child would die before a parent, and to be murdered in such a savage way, a grief knows no bounds. She went on, When Deborah was murdered, we as a family were broken. We closed our feelings and were unable to talk to each other about the murder. Finally, after several years, Peggy and I went to a homicide bereavement meeting, and that was the start of the process to learn how to heal. We are still working on it. Luke Fleming was given a chance to make a statement prior to sentencing by the judge, and he declined. He had the opportunity to apologize to the family, to show remorse, to express regrets at the actions of his youth, and he chose silence. Sarasota County Judge Charles Roberts handed down the sentence of life in prison for both counts to be served concurrently. In January 2020, before the start of the trial, Fleming's ex-Brittany, the mother of his child, told the Sarasota Herald Tribune that she remains single. She said, quote, If I could be with someone for five years and not see this, how am I supposed to know who someone truly is? The answer is, you don't. Sheriff Tom Knight gave a public statement after the sentencing. He said, quote, What is most meaningful about today's outcome is the justice it brings to Deborah's family. After two decades of searching for answers, I hope this verdict brings them the peace and resolution they deserve. As for the DNA evidence used in this investigation, it speaks volumes about law enforcement capabilities in the modern world. Those criminals who have escaped the system might want to start looking over their shoulders. This technology will only grow in its efficiency and usefulness in solving crimes. Great work by all involved. Of course, some of the people involved in bringing Fleming to justice included the jury, and one of the male jurors agreed to be interviewed anonymously by the Sarasota Herald Tribune about the experience and the evidence that persuaded the jurors that Fleming was guilty of murdering Deborah. He said that the experience was very stressful, and he found himself thinking about the case 24-7 for the duration of the trial. The jury members took their responsibilities very seriously, the interviewee said, and they felt that the DNA evidence was rock-solid, presented clearly and simply by hyper-qualified experts. About the DNA, the jurors said, quote, There was no question about it. Even he said it was his. The jurors were shocked when Fleming testified, and none of them felt that his story was remotely believable. All 12 of them voted to convict. He spent 20 years free, the jurors said. He got what was coming to him. I have to say that I was surprised at the complete lack of a defensive case that was presented by Fleming's attorney. Yes, she cross-examined the state's witnesses and managed to highlight that there were a lot of unexplained pieces of evidence at the scene, but she did not call a single witness other than her own client. If she could not locate even one character witness to testify on behalf of Fleming, that does not speak well of the character of the now 40-year-old man with no friends or supporters. Or maybe she just miscalculated and assumed that Fleming was believable and the evidence of his involvement would not sway the jury. Fleming immediately filed a notice of appeal in the Florida 2nd District Court of Appeal, as was his right. His attorney, Ann Borghetti, withdrew from representing him as Fleming was declared indigent, and a public defender was appointed for his appeal. An appellant brief on the merits was filed in September 2020, and an answer from the state was filed in October. 
On March 10, 2021, a per curiam decision affirmed the trial court's verdict. This means that the appeals court upheld the trial court verdict without explanation or detail. So what else do we know about Luke Fleming? Detectives examined Fleming's computer and hard drives and found all sorts of torture porn. Plus, it seems he was into pornography involving older women, referred to by one source I spoke with as granny porn. Detectives observed that Deborah Dalzell was significantly older than Fleming. In fact, she was the age of his mother, with whom he had a fraught relationship. And in an eerie twist, Deborah actually resembled Fleming's mother. I also got my hands on the lyrics to a song that Fleming wrote. He considered himself a music artist. I can't attest to the melody, but here are some examples of the lyrics. Quote, Cupid was found beheaded and raped, his plastic soul impaled upon the black gate. There are no martyrs here, no one to eat your pain. I don't think we'll be hearing it on America's Top 40 anytime soon, but another set of Fleming's lyrics is even more telling. They say, quote, Walk into these waters bloody, you will come out clean. This death is my dream, although nothing comes without cost. Now I know the weight. Chilling, isn't it? As for Luke's youth and his possible interaction with Deborah, there was a rash of burglaries in houses under construction in the Sarasota area in the late 90s. Detective Pingle confirmed for me that Jesse Fleming, Luke's brother, was a prolific burglar. And the Colony Estates builder Ronald Johnson had filed reports that two of his new homes were burglarized in 1998 and all the appliances taken. There's nothing to indicate that this was Luke and Jesse robbing what would become Deborah's house, but they did live very nearby and Jesse liked to steal things. No one knows what the connection between Fleming and Deborah really was, but if he was prowling around the area and looked in her windows, which had no window coverings or plantings obscuring them, he would notice that she lived alone. Perhaps he started watching her and decided to act on that Sunday night in March 1999, bringing duct tape and a knife to the scene. We will almost certainly never know. It's considered very possible that Fleming was involved in other murders that have not been connected to him. There is no question that he is clever and calculating. After the advent of DNA technology almost simultaneously with the murder of Deborah, he would have recognized that he could not leave DNA behind at a crime scene. Remember that Fleming spent a good deal of time while he lived in Tennessee working a job that required him to be on the road quite a bit. He traveled all over the country. Who knows where he went or what he did. After 21 years, Deborah Dalzell's case is finally closed thanks to forensic genealogy. And if you are one of the bad guys, they are coming for you. Many thanks to retired SCSO detective Kevin Pingle for speaking with me about this case. And now I'd like to play a promo for you of a podcast I think you'll like called Crime Divers. Are you fascinated by true crime like us? If so, check out our podcast, Crime Divers, hosted by me, Jill. And me, Laura. Look out for new episodes every Tuesday when we discuss true crime from around the world. So what are you waiting for? Come join us as we dive in. DNA ID is researched, written, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music composed by Connor Betancourt. To contact us, you can email the podcast at dnaidpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on social media. You can find us at DNA ID Podcast on Instagram, at DNA ID Podcast on Twitter, and on Facebook at DNA ID Podcast. 
Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime and Missing Persons.